0: Magic Without Fears Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host Frater RC. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Yeats's Celtic Mysteries by Dr. Caligura, with commentary by me. Part, Chapter Two: Two Revivals, the Occult and the Celtic. Yeats's Celtic mysteries were very much a product of their times, representing a unique combination of two disparate cultural phenomena present at the turn of the century. Yeats's synthetic genius wove the occult rose into the red rose bordered hem of Kathleen Nihulahan. From the occult and Celtic revivals of the 80s and 90s, Yeats produced his Celtic mysteries. Occult studies are predicated upon certain beliefs which in some cases antedate civilization itself. Note good discussions of the history of the occult and the occult revivals are presented in Colin Wilson, The Occult, A History, and Richard Woods, The Occult Revolution, A Christian Meditation 1971. Of course since this dissertation came out in 1977 it's very fair to say that there's been much more significant and qualitative works done since then. The first of these beliefs is that underlying all phenomena, animals, plants, storms, and planets, is a unifying impersonal force? The Polynesians call this force mana. The Theosophists call it Akasha. Very limited two views of these, the, the bad, bad examples, in my opinion, on that. Um, of course, probably the best example for kids these days is Star Wars calling it the Force. <laughs> By definition, this force (laughs) unites the universe and its contents into one great whole. Each little piece of the universe forms but a tiny part of the all. I think uh, today you could call it actually matter. Like I've said often, Roger Penrose doesn't like being called a materialist because we don't yet know what the matter is. So why not call it matter? Is there a difference between being an energy worker or a materialist? Maybe not. The second belief, basic to magic, is that the presence of this force makes possible control or direction of the multiplicities which constitute the one. Since manna or ether, ether interrelate all phenomena like strands of a spider's web, pressure on one element somehow must affect others. For a good commentary on that, actually, you might want to check out uh, James George Fraser's work, The Golden Bough, and his sections on sympathetic magic. The magician, witch, doctor, or priest, is powerful insofar as he knows how these interrelationships work, and how they may be activated. On the most primitive level, the inhabitants of the caves at Lascaux and Altamira believed that ritual drawings of animals could somehow affect the success of their hunt. The search for knowledge concerning the correspondences of the universe and the subsequent necessary transmission of this knowledge to a chosen few is the vocation of the initiate. Out of the belief in the correspondence of all things, there grows naturally the third and last principle of occult study, that there exists a reality above or beyond the purely visible world. This concept answers the question of the destination of the soul after death and of the origin of that feeling of awe at the progress of the seasons or the beauty of a sunset which at one time or another affects nearly every human creature. At these moments mankind participates in the divine, illustrating the truth of the legendary Egyptian founder of magic, Hermes Trismegistus whose sacred tablet said that which is above is like that which is below, and that which is below is like that which is above, to achieve the wonders of one thing. This is, of course, a famous mistranslation which no one yet has seemed to notice is wrong, and which is the subject of a revision of one of my books. These basic concepts were elaborated and systematized by the ancient philosophers. Plato speculated that the goal of the numa which is the Greek word for spirit, or soul, was to free itself from the limits of the body in order to unite with the infinite one. Pneuma is spelled, Pneuma, of course. And it might have been pronounced that way at times. In the same way, Plato's poet strives to free himself from the limits of everyday consciousness to participate in the all-encompassing universal consciousness, Plato's contemporary Pythagoras, like Plato, a student of the Egyptian and Mesopotamian mysteries, discovered the mathematical basis of the harmony or correspondence of nature. He found that creation begins with the one, out of which develops the holy square of four, the divine number of paganism, about which more later. The numbers, one plus two plus three plus four, add up to ten, another sacred number. Of course, given the audience listening these days... That might make no sense since it seems people think now that 2 plus 2 equals 5 or something like that. Strange times we live in. Sorry, world. Like Plato, Pythagoras had seen a way for man to ascend to God and vice versa, to facilitate the achievement of the wonders of the one thing. And the one thing is most often interpreted to be the philosopher's stone, of course. Or uh, as the GD would call it, knowledge in conversation with your holy guardian angel. Again, there's nuances of interpretation amongst initiates, adepti, and uh, orders, for that matter. Closely related to the number of symbolism of Pythagoras is the mystical Judaism of the Kabbalah, one of the world's oldest systems of mystical thought, and the basis for all Western magical and occult teachings which followed it. Note, Caligura says, My discussion of the Kabbalah is indebted to Adolf Frank, the Kabbalah, the Religious Philosophy of the Hebrews, 1967, in Gershom Sholem on the Kabbalah and its symbolism, 1969. Of course, Moshe Adel and many other, Elliot Wolfson and many other scholars have uh, improved our understanding of its history and varieties since then. Its origins are mysterious. Some say that it was brought down from heaven by the angels after the fall to teach the first man how to recover nobility and bliss. Other traditions maintain that its fundamental doctrines go back to Abraham, who received it from God during his 40 days on the mountain. These would be what we call in scholarship, etiologies, explanations to justify why things are the way they are. In case, and this case it's from God, so it had to come by some transmission to some ancient person, Abraham, Enoch, Adam, you name it, Ezekiel, In any case, there can be no doubt that the Sefer Yetzirah, or the Book of Formations, which deals with mystical cosmology, existed in oral tradition long before the first century after Christ. The second book of the Kabbalah, the Zohar, or Book of Splendors, concerns the spiritual world and is no doubt more recent, having been taken down in Aramaic in 1275 by the Spanish Kabbalist Moses de Leon. She skips actually the the middle one there that's almost as old as the Sefer Yetzirah, which is the Sefer Bahir, um, book of um, which is 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 in my opinion the most important of all of them. But um, it's the Sefer Yetzirah, of course, that establishes the basis that becomes the Tree of Life. The Kabbalah asserts the fundamental unity of the creation with its Creator, thereby formally elevating man to the position of God, at least in potential. And that's actually quite a Hermetic. Kabbalistic interpretation, because Hermetic Kabbalah is different than Jewish Kabbalah in many, many regards. Um, But there was definitely some Jewish Kabbalistic thought that did also think this. Furthermore, by demonstrating the balancing of opposed forces, it does away with every form of dualism, be it the dualism of good and evil, paganism and Christianity, or body and soul, by positing that such differentiations are simply necessary steps upward. Yes, I always like to think of it as a ladder, and uh, each of these understandings are true only on the level that they uh, serve to get us to the next level, heuristically, as it were. The creative one is present in the creation which emanates from it, each emanation being cruder, i.e. more material and less unified, than the one preceding it. Thus, while all dualities are potentially reconcilable, they form necessary steps in the dialectical dialectic which eventually leads to God. Yeah, that's definitely one, one uh, way of seeing it. Uh, and the last great school of the occult before modern day was that of the Neoplatonists. I think, I think that's arguable, but I'm not the expert on that. The similarity of Plotinus's philosophy and that of the Kabbalah is so marked that Adolf Frank asserted, asserted that they shared a common origin. Proclus, another of the Neoplatonic seers, asserted that the human consciousness is capable of leaping into communion with the One and becoming united with it in a kind of divine madness. This idea is similar to the Kabbalistic concept that certain adepts can bypass the dialectical process by which one approaches the Godhead by degrees, choosing instead the middle pillar or direct route. We can see examples of this divine madness in Jakob Burma, the mystical 16th century shoemaker and his disciple William Blake. Blake's assertion that the only God was the one within each person is simply an application of the Hermetic doctrine as above, so below. That's fair. And another uh, insider note of initiation or initiated knowledge is the middle pillar, of course, doesn't mean avoiding the other two pillars because we climb the middle pillar by following the path of Nehushtan, the serpent, as it winds up the paths, but only specific paths. Mm-hmm. It was on this fundamentally romantic concept of an organic universe that the 19th century occult revival which gave birth to the Golden Dawn in Yeats's Celtic Mysteries was based. However, the sudden upsurge of interest in the occult at that time can only be understood in the context of the preceding Victorian era. The London of the 1880s was clearly in revolt against the rationalism of the Age of Progress. Science, wherein was thought to lie the seeds, for the imminent heaven on earth fail to fulfill its promise. Um, Note, Frank stated uh, to Plotinus and his disciples, as well as to the adepts of the Kabbalah, God is the imminent cause of the essential origin of things. He is, as Porphyrius, Porphyrius says, everywhere and nowhere. We have both uses of imminent there, imminent heaven on earth, heaven happening now, right away on earth, and God is imminent, as in present everywhere, with the other version of that word. Important to note for those of you using those words. But while the Industrial Revolution did not bring paradise, it nevertheless robbed man of his spiritual values. Even religion had suffered a setback at the hands of the higher criticism of the Bible, and of course Darwin. Together, rationalism and science, or Yeats's despised pair Huxley and Tyndall, had deprived man of his faith without providing a satisfactory substitute. As Samuel Hines said, quote, Victorian science may have made metaphysics obsolete, but it had not destroyed men's metaphysical itch. Note the Edwardian turn of the mind from Princeton University Press, 1968. Neither of the new science nor higher criticism was able to destroy religious faith entirely, of course. Browning, for example, was but one of the many practitioners of the new techniques of Bible study who retained their faith intact. Yeats, however, felt that rational approaches undermined the very foundations of Orthodox faith as he knew it. The occult tradition offered that which had been lost by promising to open the doors to unknown and mysterious knowledge available to those willing to recognize the irrational and to approach it with faith. Before anyone thinks, I think, uh, that Yeats was too superstitious, as he was superstitious, it's important important to consider growing up in the late 1800s. Imagine his childhood from 1865 to 1975, those ages from 1 to 10 and his teens often spent in the west of Ireland around turf fires with no electricity. There was no electricity in most of these places till the 1950s, and even some of them in not until the 1970s. I was in a place that had no electricity till the 1970s, and once they got it, they wanted it taken away when they found out it cost money. <laughs> of course, superstition is uh, from my years living there. Alive and very well, even amongst the most ardent rationalists you'll find in Western Ireland. The appeal of the ancient wisdom, romantically suffused with odors of Gothic incense, was strong, as is evidenced by the enormous popularity of the many societies, secret and pseudo scientific, that came into existence around the turn of the century. The Theosophical Society of Madame Blavatsky, the Societas Rosicruciana in Anglia, Sos Ross, The hermetic students of Yeats and the Society of Psychical Research were joined not only by those on society's lunatic fringe, but also by otherwise staid and respectable members of society. Membership in such organizations became fashionable, and the Golden Dawn numbered among its members doctors, scholars, heiresses, housewives, and even the coroner of the City of London, as well as poets and true magicians. Of course, uh, Tony, Dr. Tony Fuller has a great book on the Anglo-Catholic priests uh, and how many of them and what they were up to in the Golden Dawn. The origins of the Golden Dawn, like those of all good secret societies, were mysterious, but the story has now been told many times. Here Dr. Calagira notes two books, Francis King's Ritual Magic in England um, 1970, which is good, and also, primarily, Alec Howe's The Magicians of the Golden Dawn, a documentary history of the a Magical Order, 1887-1923, to 1923, which, it should be noted, has, is, is so f- egregiously full of errors that it should be read more as fiction than in history. Uh, Alec Howe also had contempt, as well as uh, poor scholarly skills in many people's opinions, well, as the facts show. Suffice it to say that one day in 1884, a seemingly ancient cipher manuscript came into the possession of Dr. William Wynne Westcott, coroner of the City of London and Master Mason. Note, Westcott was also a member of the Societas Rosicruciana in Anglia. That's actually a really important point. An occult organization for Master Masons founded in 1866 by Robert Wentworth Little on the basis of some papers he purportedly found in the Masonic Hall. The organizational structure of the Societus Rosicruciana in Anglia, as it was called, was similar to that of the Masonic Temple. Initiates advanced by degrees while assimilating teachings based on the Kabbalah and Egyptian magic. Westcott enlisted the aid of his friend and fellow Rosicrucians, Dr. W.R. Woodman and Samuel Little, later McGregor, Mathers. Westcott charged Mathers with the task of creating working rituals for four grades, or degrees, as outlined in the Cipher Manuscript. For this, Mathers was eminently suited, as his occult knowledge was extensive. His translation of the Kabbalah, The Kabbalah Unveiled, 1887, was the first available in English. He was later to make available other rare occult documents. Meanwhile, Westcott was allegedly corresponding with one Fräulein Sprengel, a German adept whose address was conveniently found among the cipher papers. He claimed to have obtained from her authorization to found a London branch of her German order, which was called Die Goldene Demmerung. Thus, in 1888, Woodman, Westcott, and Mathers named themselves chiefs of the Isis-Urania Temple of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, establishing a magical order, the influence of which is apparent even today. The history of the Golden Dawn is a record of human frailty and occult triumph. Mathers, who quickly came to control the order, soon became obliged to create rituals beyond those for the original Four Degrees, and in 1892, the inner order of the Rosae Rubea et Aurea Crucis, R.R. et A.C., was created. As membership grew, Mather's rituals were expanded, and an elaborate course of study was evolved to prepare the student to advance through the degrees. Note, the rituals have been published by Israel Rigardi in The Golden Dawn. R.G. Torrens, The Secret Rituals of the Golden Dawn. Selections from the Order's course of study have appeared in S.L. McGregor-Mathers et al. Astral Projection, Ritual Magic, and Alchemy, edited by Francis King in 1972. And again, note that the history of Dr. In this, in this dissertation, as well as um, indicated areas, as we've just gone over, um, has improved a lot recently. Uh, if you want to look into the r- surprising appearance of Fräulein Sprangle in actual history uh, from uh, the depths of uh, doubt, uh, look at Christopher McIntosh's essay on Fräulein Sprangle, of course, which is a new recent uh, <laughs> revolution in our understanding of the history of the G.D. Unlike the Societist Rosacruciana, On the organization of which the structure of the Golden Dawn was based, or the Theosophical Society, the Golden Dawn course of study in the Inner Order included instruction on the techniques of practical magic. By the time he met Mathers, sometime prior to 1890, Yeats had been engaged in occult study for a few years. From his boyhood days in Sligo, where the peasants spoke knowledgeably about the little people, Yeats had grown up with a belief in the reality of the unseen world. His uncle's servant, Mary Battle, had frequent clairvoyant episodes, and his cousin, Lucy Middleton, often told him of strange sights she had seen at Balizador, Balizador, or Ross's. It's from autobiographies. It's a great little read of Yeats's, by the way. While yet under the influence of his father's rationalism, Yeats would wander the wraths, unable to believe intellectually that the fairies could carry one away, body and soul, but able to believe with his emotions. When he began systematically to study psychical research and mystical philosophy, he felt that he had found allies for his secret thought. There's a note here briefly, the grades or degrees of the Golden Dawn were as follows. Outer order, neophyte, 0 equals 0, zealotor, 1 equals 10, theoricus, 2 equals 9, practicus, 3 equals 8, philosophus, 4 equals 7, Inner order, Adeptus Minor, 5 equals 6, Adeptus Major, 6 equals 5, Adeptus Exemptus, 7 equals 4. The third order grades, Magister Template, 8 equals 3, Magis, 2 equals 9, Ipsissimus, 10 equals 1, were post-mortem grades considered unattainable on the physical plane. It was the th- to the third order that Mathers' Invisible Teachers belonged. And of course, anyone claiming those uh, post-mortem grades is a sure sign of someone not really knowing what they're talking about. In Ireland, in 1885, Yeats and his friends founded the Dublin Hermetic Society, but Yeats was not content to study mystical philosophy with only one group. He sought out H. P. Blavatsky's Theosophists, attracted by the romantic notion that they affirmed the real existence of the Jew Ahasuerus, and to Yeats, a figure of the self-exiled Magician, He found HPB, as she was called, unforeseen, illogical, incomprehensible in his memoirs, but quite fascinating. He joined the Theosophical Society in 1887 and soon organized an esoteric section within it for the purpose of experimenting with practical magic. Though his experiments were unsuccessful, they were at variance with the Society's more abstract aims, and Yeats was politely asked to resign in 1890. Of course, with what we know about H.P. Blavatsky and some of the blatantly fraudulent stuff she did to uh, uh, get power and earn money, that's not really a surprise that she would want someone who's actually trying to do real work uh, kicked out. (laughs) If you have someone doing real work, you can't really sell off work that you know in advance is phony. By this time, however, Yeats had already met the person who was to exert great influence upon his occult life, and indirectly his art, S.L. MacGregor Mathers. Yeats was initiated into the Golden Dawn on 7th March 1890. Membership increased steadily. Others, who were to become participants in his Celtic mysteries, were initiated at about the same time. Note, the confusion surrounding the actual date of Yeats's initiation has been cleared. See George Mills Harper from Zelotor de Theoricus: Yeats' link with the invisible degrees, in Yeats' Studies 1, 1971, pages 80 to 86. In this article, Harper determined that the initiation of May or June 1887 in a Charlotte Street studio of which Yeats wrote in his autobiography was probably into M. Blavatsky's Theosophical Society and not into the Golden Dawn. Annie Horniman, whose generosity to Mathers in effect gave the Golden Dawn its early financial backing, was initiated even before Yates in January of 1890. Florence Farr came in July of that year, while Maud Gaughan was initiated in November of 1891. Yates's uncle, George Pelexven, was initiated in December of 1892. In 1895, troubles began. Mathers' rule, which grew increasingly autocratic, it became at last intolerable, and he was ousted from membership in the Isis-Urania temple in April 1900. Note Mathers and his wife moved to Paris in 1892, where they established an offshoot temple of the Golden Dawn, Ahathur Number 7. Mathers served as imperator of this temple while continuing to direct Isis-Urania in absentia. After his ouster from the London Temple in 1900, Mathers retained control of Ahathur. For a description of the events surrounding Mathers' expulsion, see chapter 3. The ejection of Mathers did not, however, solve all the problems of the Order. A controversy erupted over the legality of the existence of secret study groups within the Order, which Yates opposed. Uh, Sounds like to me this is from Alec Howe's History and is identity. Is something I don't ag- I agree was actually the case. I don't believe the Sphere groups uh, is was anything to do with the issue or uh, in the early order. Anyway, there's I think there's different opinions on that. Uh, I I have think it's these other issues that will be covered. By 1901, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, as previously constituted, existed no more. Yeats and his party split off to form more. The Morgan wrote. The Celtic mysteries which had survived, the loss of Mathers, could not survive this last blow, and they too expired. So it's very clear, um, a lot of this stuff is taken... Uh, Dr. Callagher had very limited access to history, given what we have access to today, of, of letters and documents and uh, in-depth studies. So uh, this is, don't take this as gospel. It's uh, was It was the best an academic could do, it seems, in 1977 with the available information. Two, Yeats was but a participant in the occult revival of the 1880s and 1890s. It would have developed, though less richly, without him. The Celtic revival, however, was to a very large extent the product of Yeats's own efforts. His poem, The Wandering of Oisin, or Ushin, 1889, set the tone and is also this story a story of initiation intentionally. His collections, Fairy, f- Fairy and Folk Tales of the Irish Peasantry, 1888, and Irish Fairy Tales, 1891, provided subjects, and the Celtic Twilight, 1893, gave it a name. Its effects were far-reaching, inspiring an upsurge in national feeling which turned art and scholarship to Irish subjects. The Celtic revival even influenced the occult, inspiring Yeats to produce the unique blend of Celtic mythology and occult knowledge which formed the Celtic mysteries. Ernest Boyd, in Ireland's literary renaissance, dated the beginning of the Celtic revival from the publication of Standish O'Grady's History of Ireland, Heroic Period, in 1878. Yeats referred to that book as the start of us all in his memoirs. From that time, Boyd said, began the outpouring of Irish poems, tales, and ballads, which characterized Ireland's literary renaissance. However, it was Yeats who saw in the nationalistic writings the potential for a movement in which Irish authors would create a fresh and universal art from Irish materials. Yeats found his Irish voice through the influence of the great Fenian leader, John O'Leary, whom he met about 1884, at a meeting which Malcolm Brown called the Providential Conjunction of the Two Extraordinary Minds, which marks the point of origin of the modern Irish literary movement. O'Leary turned Yeats away from Swedish princesses, Greek islands, Moorish magicians, Spanish inquisitors, Hungarian patriots, and Indian scenes, as Horace Reynolds catalogued Yeats's early poetic subjects, and towards Irish matters. Speaking of the young Ireland society of which O'Leary was president, Yeats remarked, ignoring the occult, from these debates, from O'Leary's conversation and from the Irish books he lent or gave me has come all I have set my hand to since. That's in Yeats' autobiographies. Although both Yeats and O'Leary recognized that the rhetorical poetry of Thomas Davis was not art, they saw in it that Irish subjects could move and inspire. Yeats felt that it was to be his mission to show Ireland good art and to unite the two halves of Ireland, Catholic and Separatist and Protestant and Unionist, in a national literature that made Ireland beautiful in memory and yet had been freed from provincialism by extracting criticism and European prose. It's autobiographies. Actually, I have an interesting story. When I was living in Belfast in 2009, I was doing uh, a radio interview with these two hosts in East Belfast, which is not uh, what my friends in West Belfast would call the safe place to be. Um, I was a Canadian, so I was pretty much safe even in the most dangerous places. As soon as people heard my accent, everyone was like, you would walk down what street every night? I'd be like, that street. They'd be like, Jesus. And they'd, they'd be like, did anyone ever talk to me? I'd be like... Uh, yeah i'd say hey what's up dude and they ignore me after that but still lucky and i should have been maybe more careful but in this east belfast radio show i was doing uh promotions for my new album and the drunken priest and uh they i said well some of these songs that you want me to play um and put on the radio and have me play live even all have gaelic lyrics uh gaelga irish gaelga lyrics in them what do you think i don't know how i feel about playing that on protestant east belfast radio and they said well it's certainly never been done before as far as any of us knew of course and it seemed risky but um after we thought about it they just looked at me and said work away work away and uh let's let's have the chips formed where they may so uh, i sang a lot of gaelic and even Shano's songs on east belfast public radio and that went over just fine i think So that's a testament, actually, to uh, this idea that Yeats had of the culture and imagination of the mythology and joint history of Ireland connecting the two sides. And it's the basis of the first ritual I composed, a ritual for peace in Ireland um, in the late 90s that was then done by several Golden Dawn temples over the next seven years. And it's still used today. Yeats set out to be the first critic of this new artistic awareness, As his early letters to the Irish-American newspapers, the Boston Pilot, and the Providence Sunday Journal, paying work obtained through O'Leary's efforts, indicate. Time after time, in reviewing the works of his countrymen, Yeats pleaded his case. In 1889, he asserted, creative work has always a fatherland. There is no fine nationality without literature, and no fine literature without nationality. And in 1888, he lamented, "What a sad business this non-nationalism has had been." A lot of that talk, of course, got, got written up as a, a sort of fascist-leaning. But again, his his thing that he was mainly upset about was the fact that they grew up being beaten if they spoke their language, if they talked about anything cultural whatsoever, um, and that's a that's a very distressing thing. So it's like if in Canada I hear about First Nations people talking about. You know, trying to uh, bring their culture more to the fore of Canadian society. The f- I don't. I don't immediately go. Oh, they're trying to like take over us fascistically and and totalize Canadian diversity. No, they've been. Abused and seriously oppressed in the most massive and heinous ways for for a long time, and not nearly as long as the eight hundred years that the Irish were oppressed and had their culture almost completely eradicated. They fought tooth and nail to keep it alive at all. and Yeats here is lamenting that it needs to be brought forward in a in, in a national literature and poetry and art. He cast to Allingham in eighteen ninety for lacking impulse and momentum, the very things national feeling could have supplied. In 1889, he criticized Dr. D.R. McAnally Jr., who in Irish wonders does not treat his material with sufficient respect, being too eager to embroider everything in a kind of stage Irish he has invented. Throughout Letters to the New Island, Yeats exhibited what John P. Frayne described as the messianic fervor of gaeldom. But the point was clear. Yeats wrote... To the greater poets, everything they see has its relation to the national life, and through that to the universal and divine life. Nothing is an isolated artistic moment. There is a unity everywhere. Everything fulfills a purpose that is not its own. The hailstone is a journeyman of God. The grass blade carries the universe upon its point. But to this universalism, this seeing of unity everywhere, you can only attain it through what is near you, your nation, or, if you be no traveler, your village, and the cobwebs of you on your walls. You can no more have the greater poetry without a nation than religion without symbols. In this we can see the first hints of Yeats's concept of the anima mundi, that reservoir of shared universals which can only be approached through the concrete in particular. As Yeats remarked, Tradition is always the same. The earliest poet of India and the Irish peasant in his hovel nod to each other across the ages. They nod to each other across the ages, that's a great image, and are in perfect agreement. I like the Aristotelianism going on within Yeats, uh, which is uh, refreshing given all the rampant Neoplatonism that we see, um, usually to the detriment of our fuller understanding that Can occur when we read both Plato and Aristotle and uh, let them interact. Not to mention allow science to have a slight voice here and there. The nationalism which Yeats was advocating then was not the rhetorical political nationalism of most of the young Irelanders. Rather, it was a cultural nationalism which promoted the values of folk wisdom and native myth. As early as 1887, he was writing to Catherine Tynan, herself a disciple of O'Leary. I feel more and more that we shall have a school of Irish poetry founded on Irish myth and history, a neo-romantic movement. Further, he would do all he could to bring it about. Stating that he had been collecting fairy stories, he expressed to Tynan the wish that she too were writing on Irish subjects, and he advised her to remember by being Irish as you can, you will be more original and true to yourself, and in the long run, will be more interesting, even to English readers. That's a great insight on in the, into the mind of the times. This is, of course, all before the, the uh, 1916 and the the Irish Revolutionary War and the Irish Civil War, where, which was truly tragic, if you haven't seen the movie about that, when the wind that shakes the barley, it's heartbreaking. Um, but we can't forget this stuff, you know, man? We really can't. Meanwhile, scholarship was making available in English translations the great tradition of Gaelic mythology, from which so much of the Celtic revival was to draw on and which would be based and you know, on which would be based Yeats's Celtic mysteries, while O'Grady, who apparently knew little Gaelic, most of them did know little had brought color into life with his vivid fictionalizations of dull historical artifacts it remained for the great gaelic scholars to reveal the grand dimensions of the irish heroic cycles and folk poetry popular legend and poetry were translated by george sigerson into english meters which suggested the rhythm rhythm of the gaelic and the rhythm in Gaelic or in Irish is extremely important. Um, it's actually even hard to understand someone trying to speak the language if they don't have a certain rhythm to it. The rhythm is actually even referred to as the blás, fada with an accent S. The Bloss uh, is what gives it um, this familiar sound um, that you hear. And so if you speak a lot of Irish, you do end up getting a little... Crossfeed over in your accent. After my time on the Aran Islands, I had to work really hard to uh, make sure my Canadian accent stayed Canadian and didn't get some sort of transatlantic hybrid thing going on, because that's just embarrassing and everyone thinks you just sound stupid. <laughs> His Poets and Poetry of Munster, 1860, was followed in 1897 by Bards of the Gale and Gaul. In 1893, Douglas Hyde's influential Love Songs of Connacht was published opening further the storehouse of native culture. In that same year, William Lermany's West Irish Folk Tales and Romances was published in London. Such non-Irish scholars as Mayer and Arbois de Jubenville translated ancient Gaelic texts, while John Rice Rhys, in the Hibbert Lectures of 1886, ima- ima- examined the myths with the methods of comparative mythology. Into this welter of scholarship, Yeats brought his unifying hope for the creation of a modern Ireland united by the culture of the heroic past and the folk tradition. By 1891, Yeats was organizing literary societies to fill the lull in political activity which followed the death of Parnell. In London, he founded the Irish Literary Society, 1891, and in Dublin, the National Literary Society, 1892 for the purposes of promoting a national culture of literature and legend around all which all political factions could rally Yeats's societies were designed to promote art without unionist or separatist bias some of you might understand the better as catholic or Protestant bias but that's not as accurate as unionist as separatist bias Um, little fun fact about Irish culture and history for you there society He was trying to form a foundation upon which could be built a nation which shall be moved by noble purposes to noble ends. The effort which Yeats made to draw together Irish scholars and artists and to present their works and the great works of the past to the public was an effort to impose good taste and a unified body of national culture on a divided people. In addition, Yeats sought to inspire good art at its source, the artist, by his early critical advocacy of Irish values and subjects over British ones. Yeats's public efforts were, however, only a part of the story, for even while he was seeking to establish public appreciation for things Irish, he was striving to infuse the same values into his private life. Surely nothing speaks so well of his sincerity as his efforts to create the Celtic Mysteries an effort designed to overcome the British influence of the Societas Rosicruciana in Anglia and to create a uniquely Irish body of occult knowledge and ritual. The Celtic Mysteries, as David Dykes observed, were part of Gates's effort to put Ireland into some mental order. They were bound up with his desire to utilize traditional Irish material, literary, historical, mythical, and popular in order to solve two problems— the general problem of symbols in literature in an age lacking a common tradition, and the particular problem presented by the confusions of the Irish situation. <laughs> you got to love how he referred to it as the Irish situation. Yeah, it was a tough situation. Uh, the t- even today, I uh, have English relatives who are like, they were all terrorists. They should have stayed under our reign. And anyone who had a problem with that, they just were terrorists. Um, and, uh, you know, my Irish family and a lot of people in Ireland I know and love don't see it the same way. So there's still not an agreement on what the value of that was. But, and it's ongoing. If they put up another wall, if they put up a wall between Northern Ireland or the North of Ireland, as it should be called, and the Republic, it's going to get shot at. It's going to get bombed. It's going to cause fighting. Yep. The, the the virtues of Brexit are complicated at best. I mean, that's why I can't go back to England right now, is because I have to renew my ancestry status post Brexit, and they might not even let me. So, who knows what will happen with my attempts to finally finish my PhD. And thus ends chapter two of the three chapter doctoral dissertation by Dr. Caligera with commentary by. Yours truly, Frater R.C. I, of course, have earlier uh, posted an addendum to my Pantheacon lecture at that conference, which contains uh, sections of the end and conclusions of this dissertation um, with my commentary and notes leading up to and after the Pantheacon lecture I gave, which was an amazing, and thanks again to that great event in its final year, sadly. And I look forward to doing many other lectures on very nuanced and individual details of these subjects in the future. Once the world returns to something, I don't know, who knows, stay safe out there, people, and uh, tomorrow I'll drop the last chapter, chapter 3, Dramatis Personae. In the meantime, I have temporarily reduced my book, The Celtic Mysteries of WB8's Irish Gods, Myths and the Kabbalistic Tree of Life, which looks at and compares the Irish gods' most relevant to the Sephora of the Tree of Life uh, by uh, 80% on Amazon. So you can go check that out, grab a paperback copy. It's quite a beautiful book with lots of good stuff in it. Peace.
1: Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, golden dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit wwwhermetic science That's hermetic-science-enterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of scott's discovery of witchcraft which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh till the end of may i believe so check it out now hermetic science,